we're going to be continuing a series called Jesus 101. Jesus 101. Uh, I want to welcome anybody who's watching with us on our live stream as well. We thank you guys for being with us. Um, I, I'm going to start off this, uh, this message today by sharing something that Satan and I used to have in common. Just seeing if you guys are awake, okay? Because there is something that Satan and I used to have in common, and, and that is that we were both worship leaders at one point. And I, I led worship uh, with a bunch of teenagers for a long time, for several years, and then I was leading worship at uh, my parents' church for a little bit. And how many of you guys know that Lucifer used to lead worship, he used to lead worship in heaven? A lot of uh, scholars believe that's kind of what he did, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 is an example of that, and this is what a lot of people believe is talking about Lucifer, it's talking about his role, it's talking about how he was created. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God, uh, every precious stone was your covering. He begins to describe all of these things about him, but what I really want to highlight is the very end of this, because it becomes very fascinating when you look at this. It says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now, what many people believe is that Lucifer, when he was in heaven before God, that he was some type of lead worship leader, but he was actually built, the way he was created was that he was actually some sort of instrument himself so that he had these pipes and stuff built into him so that worship would flow through him. Now, we can't know this for sure, but this is what we kind of take from this, that worship was supposed to flow through him to the throne room of God to make music, to make worship to God. Now, that's pretty fascinating to think about, right? But, but what happened? Well, at one point we know that what must have happened is as that worship, and you can just imagine all this worship that's flowing through to God, that at some point he decided to keep some of that worship for himself. And he decided, you know, I, I must be a pretty big deal, and so I, I'm used by God in this way. And he decided to stop worship that was supposed to flow through him to God and to keep it to himself. How do you guys know that's a pretty good definition of what pride is? It's when we keep worship for ourselves that ultimately belongs to God. And you know that we are designed, and God created us to be worshipers. God created for worship to flow through us to God. But when pride comes in our life, we start to keep worship that belongs to God, keep glory that belongs to God, and we hold on to it for ourselves. And that's a really big barrier in our life. And this topic of worship is a 101 that we never get beyond in our walk with Jesus. We are created to be worshipers. And it's not just for our lives, but those of you guys who are parents, let me just speak to parents for just a little bit, and especially if you're raising young ones right now. Uh, because this idea of being a worshiper is such a big deal that you be an example of what a worshiper is like to your kids. Because the number one predictor, at least as far as I'm concerned, the number one predictor of whether kids will worship is if parents worship. And if, you, if I were to stand at the back of this room and, and look, I don't even need the kids in the room for this. But all I have to do to predict if your kids will be worshipers is to see who worships in this room. Because that's the, and, and I could go even further, and even a deeper prediction of that would be if dads worship. And so what happens is, is if I see people, you know, with hands in the pocket, and I'm not trying to be judgy or anything like that, I'm just telling you what, how it works. If parents, you know, are, are reserved and have their hands in their pockets and they don't worship, what happens is, and I was a youth pastor for many years, I, I know this, that what happens is as they grow up without a specific encounter with God that changes the direction they will mimic what you do. And our number one job as parents is to disciple our kids to have the heart of God, to be a, a follower of Jesus. This is Jesus 101. And so this is why it's a big deal. And so many of us, we kind of get pride in our life and we just, you know, well, I'm just not that way. I'm just not an expressive person. That's just not my personality. That's more my wife's thing, or that's more my kids. And, and we, we begin to come up with all these, these things. Well, I'm just not that way. And then when the Chiefs go to the Super Bowl, how many of you guys know the personality changed? How, how did that happen, right? All of a sudden, we got an expressive person, right? 
And so the question isn't if we are a worshiper or if we're expressive or if we have praise for things. The question is, what do we have praise for? Who do we have praise for? And so I'm really just setting up the topic today because I asked Pastor Aaron if he would uh, preach on this topic. Actually, before I asked him, he already had a message written. And so would you guys give it up for Pastor Aaron as he comes and brings a word? So uh, I, I want to be really intentional about staying on, on topic here. Specifically, I mean, I know we're talking about worship, but I want to stay on this topic, this focus of 101, this idea that we're in a series that's kind of touching on foundations, fundamentals, and getting to kind of the undergirding of what we believe and why we do what we do. Because worship, I believe, objectively speaking, is the deepest thing we could talk about. Now, I didn't say it was the most important thing, but I believe it's the deepest thing. We could talk about lots of things on a Sunday morning at church. We could talk about discipleship. We could talk about evangelism. We could talk about, uh, you know, teaching. We could talk about world events. But I believe as far as depth goes, and when we take a deep dive into Scripture, it's hard to find something that has the potential to go deeper than this subject, and so I just want to tell you this, just to be in, in all humility, it is an astounding demonstration of my self-discipline to keep this in the confines of the time we have today. And so I promise you I'll do that. I actually, last night, we, we had service in here, of course, last night, and it did go a little bit long. And so I, as soon as service was over, I ran back to my office and I cut a couple things out because I thought, you know what, let's stay Let's be sure that we're staying on topic. So worship 101. I want this to be for all of us because I believe that every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter how long we have followed Jesus, no matter how long we've been in church, we can go deeper than we are. Nobody in this room has found the limits of God's goodness or the limits of God's greatness or holiness or majesty or power. And so I believe no matter where you are, you can go deeper. But I also want to be sure that I'm talking to the person who you come to services, you come to church, and we have this time of worship, we have this time where we sing, and it's just challenging to participate. It's, it, it's something, it, maybe it's something that's hard to understand, or you're just not quite sure what's going on, or it's still kind of new to you, things like that. And I want to cover a lot of the bases of, <laughs> I want to cover the bases of the basis of why we do this. So worship 101. And I think the best way to start is to simply define what worship is. Now, I've spoken on worship many times over the years in different churches and different settings, and a lot of times I have asked the question, what is worship? What do you think worship is? And even gotten some crowd participation and had people say, well, I think worship is this, or I think worship is when this happens. <clears throat> and the thing is, most of those responses are accurate. Uh, it's not a simple enough topic that you can just, you know, label one simple little answer on it. And so you may have a concept or an idea in yourself what worship is, but I want to come up with a working definition today um, that we're going to use um, throughout this time we have together here. And it's a two-part definition, okay? So what is worship? Worship is basically a response to a revelation of or about God, okay? So if you ask, what is happening? What is it that we do that we call worship that's more than just singing a song or, or doing something? Um, worship is a response. So when you get an understanding, when you get a fresh picture of the goodness of God, or the greatness of God, or the majesty of God. And then your heart just responds to that. You start thinking, 
oh, God has been so good to me. There have been so many times in my life that he's been faithful to me and I just so appreciate the faithfulness of God. I'm so thankful for the mercy of God. I, every morning I wake up and, and even if things are going on that are just stressful in my life, I still have this hope and, and you start appreciating the goodness of God. That becomes worship. And it pulls you into not just what God does for you, but who God is. And then it becomes praise. And it, it takes you through this progression that we're going to talk about in a second. But worship is a response to revelation of who God is, of how great God is, of how good God is. And then secondly, worship is a posture. Um, the way you see worship manifest or demonstrated is a posture because the words used for worship in the Old and the New Testament, all describe a posture of the body. We kneel down, we bow down, we raise our hands, we clap, we shout, we dance. Well, at Journey Church, we kind of hop, but <laughs> in some churches, there's full-on dancing. But there's a demonstration, there's something that you can see, a posture of humility, a posture of praise that is demonstrated uh, when we worship. And then this isn't really a definition, but this is a key point that I want to make right away and because we're going to come back to it. Worship is for God, not for us. Let me say that again. Because this point gets to the heart of a lot of misunderstanding about worship. Worship is for God, not for us. So everything that we just did over the last 20 or 30 minutes, none of that was for you. None of that was for me. It's all for God. It's all for Jesus. And maybe in our culture and in our setting, if that becomes a little muddled and confusing because we have a setup here and in most churches the same setup where it appears like there's a concert, you know? And a concert is usually for the crowd. But that's not the case here. You know, in this case, the whole stage with the instruments and everything else, and we're going to look at this in the Bible, is just there as a vehicle and a means to help pull you into a place of worship. And so it's a different purpose, even though it looks the same. So... Let's dig a little bit deeper, and I want to bring up some common questions that I have been asked over the years about worship. So this is kind of like our FAQ section of the message today. But these are common questions, and these are things that people uh, wonder about and think about when it comes to worship. And so what we're going to do is... We're, we're, we're going to just look at what the Bible says, because I do have my opinions about all this, but I think you're probably more interested in what the Bible says specifically, verbatim, than what I just simply have to say about it. So this is almost going to be kind of like a guided Bible study today. So question number one, why can't I just worship on my own? Why can't I just worship on my own? In other words, why do I need to come in here? Why do I need to why do I need to come in here and sing? You know, I don't go to my job and start off singing in the day. I mean, I'm not aware of, I mean, if you have a job that does that, that's awesome. But why do I need to do that? Why can't I just worship on my own? And I will say this, you should worship on your own. If you're not worshiping on your own, if you're not worshiping on your own time, if this is the only time that you do this, then I can definitively say you're missing out on an enormous part of your life with God. Because this is something that should be happening daily. Uh, this shouldn't be your one moment in the presence of God, right? On the weekend right in here. So yes, you should be worshiping God on your own time. But why can't I just do that? Why do I need to come in here? Well, 
I want to go back again, like I will many times, to what we just said, the point we just made, that worship is for God. It's not for us. And so if it is for him, if it is intended for his pleasure, then we have to find out what he likes, what he wants. Because if it's about him, that's an important thing to know. So let's just look at what the Bible says. Psalms 95, 1 through 2 says this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, wouldn't it be, why wouldn't it just say, oh, come, let me sing to the Lord. Let me make a joyful noise to the rock of my salvation. Let me come into his presence why, why is it important that there's an us, that there's a corporate demonstration of worship to God? Why is that a big deal? Because it's important to God. Because he likes it. There is something special and there is something unique when we gather together and worship that is unique and different and other than those times when you worship all by yourself, driving in your car, whatever the case may be. There's something there. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says this, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, what is he saying? Is God with you all the time, even when you're alone? Yes, of course he is. But there is a special manifestation of the presence of God that's unique when we're together. We mention this all the time when it comes to the idea of fellowship and community and groups, but there are some aspects of the nature of God that you're only going to experience in community with other people. And so it's important that in addition to worshiping on your own, you worship together. Number two, another question. Isn't just living my life for God worship? And that sounds like a kind of a spiritual question because it's like kind of pushing up against this idea of being religious or ritualistic. Why do I have to sing songs and be in a service and stuff like that? And there is somewhat of a point to that question. So, I mean, you can go into the scripture. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So that's saying when you do your work, when you go to your job, you can do it with an attitude of worship, with an attitude of worship. Or Romans 12.1, it talks about, uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's your spiritual worship. And so, again, there's this idea that we can live our life with an attitude of worship. But there is a distinction and a difference between simply living your life and doing the things you do with an attitude of worship and making an intentional decision to worship God. To literally, to take your focus off of those things in your life and put it completely and wholly on God. Those are two different things. And so John 4, 23 through 24, Jesus is talking, you may recognize this story. He's talking to the woman at the well. And he says, an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But the Father uh, is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's an intentionality there. There's a purposefulness in this worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It's not simply going about your business with an attitude of worship. And then Psalms, we just read from Psalms 95, but verse six says, oh, come, oh, come, you had to come here today. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. These are clearly acts of worship, not simply living your life with an attitude of worship. And then the last question is, why can't I just worship God in my own way? You know? And, and I, 
I get this question. I mean, I, I really do. I, because you go back to this idea of living your life as an as a act of worship to God, and worship should really be able to take many manifestations in many forms. And really, I think the answer to this question goes back to our two points. What is worship? Well, worship is a response to the revelation of who God is. If you're thinking about how great God is, about how much he loves you, how holy God is, and your heart responds in worship, that response is worship. And so in that way, you could say you're worshiping him in your own way. But again, the other point that we made is, remember, who is worship for? Worship is for God. It's not for us. Worship should be more than just a means to an end. Well, I'm worshiping God because I'll get free if I do that, right? That's not why we worship. It's a benefit, but it's not why, because again, worship is for God. And so if it's for God, we should be intensely interested in what God likes. And we can find out what God likes by just looking in his word. One of the most famous and really one of my favorite short little chapters about worship is the last chapter of Psalms. I'm going to read it real quick to you because this will give you a glimpse into what God likes. Psalms chapter 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. That means praise him indoors and praise him outdoors. Praise him for his mighty deeds. This next one's really, really, really important. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Think about what that means just for a second. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. That means that your praise should be according to how great you think he is. How great do you think God is? Well, I think he's really great. Well, then your praise to him should be really great. Well, now, Aaron, uh, I'm not a very expressive person. And I believe God's great, but my, my expression of praise is more subdued. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. I'm not telling you exactly what you have to do. I'm just saying whatever your expression of praise is should be directly tied and correlated to your concept of how great God is. And so if you believe he's awesome, your praise should reflect that. Uh, number three, or verse number three, praise him with the trumpet sound. Amen. We don't have any trumpets, but some people do. Praise him with lute and harp. Okay, a lute is a guitar. A harp is a piano. Check that box. <laughs> Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding. So it's basically saying, get all the instruments you have together and make a sound of praise. Listen to this last one. Praise him with sounding cymbals. And then it's like David is saying, let me just double down on that. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. You're going to see that throughout, especially the book of Psalms, where it specifically talks about the dynamics of praise. It talks about the volume of praise. And again, that goes back to this concept of praising him according to his excellent greatness. It becomes a loud celebratory sound because we're responding to how awesome we think God is. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Look at 1 Chronicles 15, 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Pastor Sean just mentioned going to the Chiefs game. I've been to, I was at one of, oh, a couple years ago, one of the, the big playoff games, and, and then same way with the Royals uh, the year before that or whenever it was. And, you know, stadiums packed, people, people know how, how everything's on the line, how important this is, and the sound in those stadiums was deafening, was a roar, like a thunderous roar. 
because of the excitement in their heart over that game. And I'm not criticizing anybody for getting excited about that. I did too. But let's put it in perspective, right? And like I'm just tagging on to what Pastor Sean said a few minutes ago. If we can get that excited about that, how much more do we get excited about the king of kings leaving his throne to rescue us, right? Um, And then Psalms 33, one through three. I wanna read this to you out of the Passion Translation. Um, You can go back and read it out of the King James and get the original context if you want, the original English context. But I love how this pulls it into modern language. Listen to this. It's time to sing and shout for joy. Go ahead, all you redeemed ones, do it. Praise him with all you have, for praise looks lovely on the lips of God's devoted lovers. Play the guitar as you lift your praises, loaded with thanksgiving. Sing and make joyous music with all you've got inside. Compose new melodies that release new praises to the Lord. Play his praises on instruments with the anointing and skill he gives you. Sing and shout with passion. Make a spectacular sound of joy. And you know, oh man, I told you I was going to be really self-disciplined. Let me just say this one thing. I, I, want to, I want to dismantle the idea that there's this great separation between people that are on a worship team and people that come and sit in a seat uh, at a church service. We've all been given the same instrument. And we all, we all possess the most important instrument. And it's not a guitar. It's this. It's our voice. And you all have that instrument. And regardless if you're a great singer or not a great singer, you all have been given the ability to worship God. I mean, barring some kind of a physical problem where you can't sing, to be able to praise God with this instrument. And we're called to do that. We're called to do that. Okay, so those are some of the questions that I've been asked over and over and over again. And I can't help thinking that whether you're in here or whether you're in auditorium too or whether you're watching online, you may have had some of those questions before. But you know you've really done that. You know, we just got through reading those three different scripture passages about just going for it in worship. And you know that you've done that when you get to the end of a time of worship and you feel like something, like you've spent yourself, right? And the feeling, the, the, the sensation of having spent yourself in worship is a good feeling. It's not like you've just been uh, destroyed or you're exhausted after physical labor. It's it's, it's a good feeling, but nonetheless, you feel that you have spent yourself. You, there's a, uh, there's, there's a, a sensation after being in the, in the presence of God and really investing yourself into worshiping him. And that's because worship costs something. Worship costs something. And the reason it costs something is because you are giving God, you're giving Jesus, who you love, something of value. And it should cost something. There's a story in the Old Testament that I think is like required reading for anybody who's interested in worship. And it's in 2 Samuel 24. What's happening is David is repenting of sin that's brought judgment on Israel. And the prophet tells David, you need to go to this guy's land. I think his name, I think you pronounce his name, Aruna. That's how it's going to be pronounced today, at least. (laughs) And, but when Aruna sees David coming, he runs down and just offers to give David everything that he needs to build an altar and worship God. And so here's just a couple verses to kind of show you what that's saying. Uh, 22 through 24 says, Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice. 
and threshing implements and the yokes of oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Listen to this. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. When you enter into a time of worship, you are bringing something of value and giving it to God. There's another verse in the Bible that says, we bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks. And there's something about the fruit of your lips giving thanks that is a sacrifice to God. Let me tell you this. If you're going through a hard time, if you're going through a stressful time, and most people are, and you come in here or wherever, and you give God thanks in the midst of that stressful time, that is a sacrifice of praise because it's not always easy. But it is a choice and it's a decision that we make. And David talks about in Psalms 86, 12, he said, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So what I want to do is I want to take the last little bit of time we have here and let's just get practical and let's talk about what you do to actually step into this. How do you approach God in worship? How do you approach God in worship? Now we talked about worship is being defined as being a response to revelation of God or about God. And in James, the book of James, it says that if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And I think that's so amazing. Because what that means is, because see that first part where we draw near to God, that's, that's that response part we were talking about. We see how awesome God is and we respond in our heart in an act of worship. That's drawing near to God. But when God sees us do that, he responds to us by drawing near to us. And that's how it works. Um, but the, the actual act or the, the progression, the steps of moving in to the presence of God does not have to be a mystery. It doesn't have to be an uh, ambiguous, super spiritual Mystery. It is spiritual, but it doesn't have to be something that you can't figure out. Because in the Old Testament, there's actually a very clear picture of how this works and how this looks. And so we see it actually more than once. Moses was commanded to build a tabernacle. Okay, so the tabernacle was uh, this tent in the wilderness because they were nomadic at that time and they moved from place to place. And God commanded Moses to build this tent facility wherever they were. And we actually have a picture of it. Let's go ahead and put that up now. And you see on the picture behind me this, this walled out section. And that's called the courtyard. And in there's some there's there's some other things in there, and we could take, we could go. We could do a whole sermon series on just the tabernacle. I just want to hit the pertinent points right here to talk about the progression into the presence of God. But in the tabernacle, there was a tent, and inside the tent was a special place called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. And in that place was where the presence of God dwelt. Now, we're going to talk about this in a second. Things have changed since then. And the way the presence of God is manifest has changed. But the progression into his presence has not. So Psalms 100 talks about entering into the presence of God. And it references the tabernacle. So you can see on the picture behind me that there is a gate that brings you into the court. And then you move through the court 
and you enter into the tent where the holy place is. So you see these steps. Psalms 100 verse 4 says this, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter through or into his courts with praise. So the first two of those steps are laid out clearly for us. And you're thinking, maybe you're thinking, surely it's not that simple. It is that simple. It is that simple. And many of you do this and you just don't realize it's what you're doing because the Holy Spirit leads us through this process. But if you understand how the process works, then you can get into and access closeness with God more consistently and with less resistance from yourself. So let me kind of demonstrate how this works. You start off many, many times, whether you're driving in your car or you're in here uh, with us worshiping, but in a time of worship, you start off by recognizing the goodness of God. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for what you're doing all around me. I know I'm struggling with some things. I know there's some circumstances going on. But God, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. I just want to thank you that you're so good. And as these words, the fruit of our lips giving thanks, starts to pour out of our mouth, gradually our perspective begins to lift from our circumstance up to God. And as that happens our thanksgiving begins to transition into praise. You understand? And it's not so much about thank you, God, for what you're doing for me. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for stepping into my situation. And your words start to change into because you're so great, because you're so awesome, because you're a God of love, because you are faithful. And the eyes in your prayer start turning into you. And so we're literally entering the gates with thanksgiving, and then we're moving through those courts with praise. Because the Bible's true, guys. I mean, it lays out the process right here. Okay, but I talked about this tent that contained this, this special place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, uh, the tabernacle was a temporary place, and then Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, which was the tabernacle, but permanent, okay, until it was torn down. And so the same setup was in the temple. You had the same gates in the courtyard, and you had the most holy place. Now, inside that tent, there was separating out kind of a preparational place from the actual holy, holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the, whole, and the presence of God was. And it was separated by a curtain. And calling it a curtain is really not doing it justice. It was a giant veil that was two inches thick and it was very tall and it separated God and the presence of God from people. And it wasn't because God doesn't like people. It's because we had to be protected in our own righteousness from the glory of God or we just would not survive. And so that veil was there to keep us out of the presence to protect us because the only way to enter the presence of God is by having right standing with God. And before Jesus came, we didn't have right standing with God. But since Jesus is the Lamb of God, you see where I'm going with this? The blood of the Lamb gave us right standing with God. And it, it made a way for you and me to do that thing that only one man could do one day out of the year, which was to go into the most holy place. And so when Jesus died and he said, it is finished, something so Epic happened that there aren't even really words to, to contain how incredible it was. But that veil was removed by God himself. If you read the account in scripture, God tore that thick, tall, two-inch veil himself in two. 
and he removed the barrier. That's amazing. That's amazing. And there's something about the removal of that veil um, that has been almost mysterious and confusing to me who has been most of my life has just has been a worshiper and for so many years I just didn't understand why other people who are born again children of God love God would be willing to settle for entering his gates and entering his courts but not entering the holy place. Because when the veil was torn, there's like this threshold that you can step over into this place that you're so close to God and you're so near to the holiness of God. And we're supposed to be there, you know? This is something God wants. He's the one who tore the veil, not us. And I think that this is, I kind of struggled with this last night too, because this is like, this is a concept that just feels bigger than uh, just a guy teaching with words can capture and communicate. And so, Holy Spirit, right now, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and help our hearts to understand the longing of your heart that we would come in to your holy place. In Jesus' name, amen. So the tabernacle is no longer a literal place, but it's a place in the spirit. And we enter his gates, we enter his courts, and he calls us to enter the most holy place. And I don't, I don't know if I totally understand the answer to this, but I'm going to do my best to communicate it. I think there are maybe ways that we think that hinder us. I'll tell you a phrase that I use a lot that applies to a lot of things very well and very accurately is the idea of leaning in to the things of God. And I think that that is an accurate uh, expression for a lot of things, you know, you get a new truth revealed to you and you lean into it. You know, so Proverbs talks about uh, trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. It's this idea of leaning on God or leaning into God. But in this case, in this instance, I mean, where I'm standing right here, there's a seam between these two stage pieces. And I kind of look at it like a threshold. In this instance, if this right here was the most holy place, God is not calling me to lean in to the most holy place. He's calling me to press in and to step in. He wants to see movement. He wants to see us actually move in to this place of his presence. And listen, it's not because we are pursuing or chasing after a feeling or an experience because I know that that happens too. This is a heart issue. Worship is a heart issue. It's about God's heart and it's about our heart. And God wants us to press in to his presence. The woman with the issue of blood, that story in the Bible, the Bible says that the crowds were pressing in to Jesus and so she had to press in to touch the hem of his garment. The Greek word there literally means to pursue into. Paul even talks about how we need to press on towards becoming Christ-like. It's the same word, to pursue into. And if we want to go to the most holy place in worship, we have to pursue into the holy place. We have to press in. It's not a, it's not a passive thing, right? Right? So if the way is open and the veil that separated us from God is torn, 
Why don't we enter in? You know? And just ask yourself that question. Examine your own heart. Why, why do you go a little ways and stop? And you know, I, we are designed, our ultimate purpose is to be in communion with God. It goes deeper than our role or our calling or things like discipleship or evangelism or whatever. It's deeper than all that. It's foundational. And what holds us back? And here's something I want you to consider as I'm wrapping it up for real. Could it be that God has torn the veil that separates him from us, but we have not removed a veil that's over our own heart that separates us from him. I talked, when I spoke a few weeks ago, I talked about that book, Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozier, and there's actually another quote in there I want to read to you right now. And uh, we can go ahead and have the band come back up. Listen to this, though. And read this along with me as I read it to you. Tozier is talking about why don't people enter in to that most holy place? He says, the answer usually given simply that we are cold will not explain all the facts. There is something more serious than coldness of heart, something that may be back of that coldness and be the cause of its existence. What is it? What but the pre presence of a veil in our hearts, a veil not taken away as the first veil was, but which remains there still shutting out the light and hiding the face of God from us. It is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature, living on, unjudged within us, uncrucified and unrepudiated. It is the close woven veil of the self-life, which we have never truly acknowledged, of which we have been secretly ashamed, and which for these reasons we have never brought to the judgment of the cross. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm, because you can be born again, New life created inside you, and you can still allow a self-focused nature to cover your heart and create a hardness of heart that hinders you from stepping into that last phase of worship, if I can use that terminology. So you can have this veil on your heart, and you can enter his gates with thanksgiving, and you can enter his courts with praise. But when you try to press into that place that God is really drawing you to come in and be with him, this veil holds you back. And you feel like you hit a wall. And you're not quite sure why, but you just know you're not quite experiencing some of the things that other people are. But hear me now. Listen to this. Behind that veil, your heart as a child of God your heart desires to cross that threshold. It's like David said in Psalms 42, as the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? You see, you see this more consistently demonstrated um, when kids and teenagers worship. And I want to say this before you think too much about that. God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of age ranges. There's nothing magical about any particular age range. We're all children of God. But there is something unique when you watch children worship God and when you watch teenagers worship God. The other part of Pastor Sean's story at the beginning is when he stopped leading worship for teenagers, he moved into more pastoral ministry. I took over his job as the worship leader for the teenagers. And I have led worship for decades now. 
in many types of churches. In many, I've led worship in mega churches. I've led worship in churches with less than 15 people. And, the, and some of the most powerful and intense and close moments with the presence of God has been when I've led worship with teenagers. And why is that, you may ask? I have a theory. And my theory is that there is still enough of a childlike approach to God that a veil has not laid over their heart yet. Remember what Jesus said. He's, he's speaking and kids start coming up to him. And his disciples are like, get those kids out of here. And he's like, stop it, stop it. Let them come to me. Because you have to be like this to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I believe there's something very significant about the idea of how we let our heart get hard, how we get weighed down with the cares of life, and a veil of self-focus comes over our heart. And it doesn't mean we can't be thankful. It doesn't mean we can't praise God, but it hinders us from going to the place he calls us to in worship. And so let's lift the veil, okay? Let me pray as you stand. We're gonna worship. Let me pray over you guys. Father, right now, we are here in this auditorium, here in auditorium two, watching online, but we with one voice as one people in unity, Lord, we're saying to you that we want any hindrance that keeps us out of that place of closeness to you. We want any hindrance to be lifted and taken out of the way right now. Lord, examine our heart. Search our heart. Show us if there's anything that needs to be surrendered to you. Show us if there's anything that needs to be uh, laid down to, before you, Lord God. Show if there's any hardness that needs to be broken up. And God, we say that the desire of our heart, way down deep, is we wanna know you, we wanna be close to you, we wanna approach your throne, we want your presence to be so close to us. And we realize, God, that's what we were made to do. That's, what, that's why we exist, is to bring you pleasure. And so God, right now, as we worship you, I pray that by your spirit, you would work on each and every heart. You would work with us, each one of us, and lead us into a place of freedom in worship that we've never experienced. In Jesus' name, welcome here, Holy Spirit.